The following is a special presentation of the Voice of Montreal News Talk Radio, CJAD 800. After 75 years, there are plenty of secrets and stories to share about one of North America's legendary radio stations. This is the Mighty 800, produced and hosted by Trudy Mason. Episode 5, the CJAD 800 Jewish Mobile Squad. The late 1960s and early 1970s were an exciting and fraught time in Montreal. The city was coming off the high of Expo 67, making plans for the Olympics in 1976, and was also embroiled in the political upheaval that led to the October crisis of 1970 and the rise of the Parti Québécois. Amidst it all, CJAD 800 was building a reporting team. Although regular newscasts were an established feature, on-the-scene radio reporting was in its infancy at the start of the 1960s. Sidney Margulies was on call around the clock, joined toward the end of the decade by Rick Lackner and Peter Sherman. Together, they formed what they called the Jewish Mobile Squad. CJAD 800's Trudy Mason has a look back for the Mighty 800. radio reporter uh, starting uh, full-time in, in 1959. Sidney Margulies was kept very busy by events unfolding in Montreal. Uh, it was certainly exciting to be out on the road, especially as it turned out I did cover some uh, significantly major events, uh, starting with the, um, the Reichman kidnapping when I was just a part-timer. Uh, then, of course, the TCA crash in 1963, which I guess put me on the map as a reporter out on the road because I was the only one there for many hours until other media uh, showed up. Uh, Many people would say that the 60s and 70s were the golden years of of radio broadcasting. They certainly were the years where radio news evolved into a a major force in the community, not only in Montreal, but uh, uh, basically throughout North America. Sidney Margulies realized he needed help in the CJAD 800 newsroom, so he lured cub reporter Rick Lechner away from CKGM. I went to work at another radio station, and I like to tell the story that once I got my feet very uh, firmly planted on the ground with this other station, and was going to lots of stories, I would tell people that, you know, Sydney hired me because I kept beating him to too many fires. I became Sydney's first employee back in April 68. Uh, he became deputy news director of the radio station. And then a couple of years later, uh, Peter joined the team. Peter Sherman was recruited from among CJAD800's technicians. The third member of the reporting team says he had to jump in with both feet. People looking at us as... Uh having produced this marvelous exposition called Expo 67, people looking at us as a contender for the 1976 Olympics, and all the other things that were going on, plus the tremendous political unrest that was manifested in uh, at, at the stage I started in 69. It was a lot of street demonstrations, riots. Uh, the Montreal police were called out uh, many, many times for people sitting on what used to be Dorchester, now René Lévesque, and uh, protesting the way things were running between Quebec and Canada. Lots of problems. 
uh, in those times. Uh, and, and so you talk about a baptism of fire for a 22-year-old kid. I wasn't even married yet, much less having kids of my own. So my days were my own, and if I had to work 24 hours, then I did, as did my colleagues. So we had something going. It was amidst all this frantic reporting action that the three men came up with a name for themselves— Peter Sherman. I originally said in the newsroom we should call ourselves the CJMS, which happened to be the call letters of a radio station. I don't think it's on the air anymore. A French radio station in Montreal called uh, CJMS. And uh, the other guy said, why? And I said, Canadian Jewish Mobile Squad. And I think Rick or Sid, don't know who, probably said, what do we need the Canadian for? That's pretty obvious. Why don't we just say we're the JMS? And it was, it was a joke for a while. The guys in the newsroom and said, call the JMS. But eventually, it kind of stuck, and it got out there. And it wasn't uh, used in a derogatory way. We were the guys who coined it ourselves. Um, but we were three guys. We were all Jewish, lived in the West End. Uh, and uh, we happened to be reporters, and we were because we were on CJD, which was and is the monster medium in Montreal. Uh, we were known to everybody. Rick Lechner says the JMS became widely known, even among reporters, for francophone media outlets. We ribbed about it. It was great because we used to kick ass. <laughs> you know, really, Sydney, Peter, and I, 24-7, there wasn't anything in Montreal, uh, greater Montreal area, that, that we weren't on top of. And generally first and uh, really with all the details and all the scoops. So uh, we didn't get much ribbing, but what the heck, if they wanted to, they could rib us all we want. The mobile part of the JMS name was key to its fame. Sid Margulies on the technological developments which allowed reporting live from the scene. Uh, initially, we started out with, uh, as I said, a telephone, uh, a mobile telephone uh, from the Bell system where you had to call an operator to hook you up. Then we had installed a, a shortwave radio system. And that shortwave radio system would transmit to a tower, uh, which would then click into the station and then be able to uh, rebroadcast or broadcast live. We had two towers in Montreal, one at the Université de Montréal, but because of our mountain, we needed one on the south side. And I personally negotiated uh, with the owner of an apartment building at the corner of Peel and Sherbrooke to erect a tower there, which served us for the south side of Mount Royal. The TCA crash in 1963 then led to additional innovation. Uh, while we had uh, a portable, it was not powerfully, uh, powerful enough to transmit directly back to the station. And uh, what was developed by Lloyd Sharkey in conjunction with Motorola was called a carrier-operated relay system where I would broadcast from a portable unit to the car, which would then retransmit it immediately back to the tower, which linked to the station, which put me on the air. The three-member JMS provided round-the-clock news coverage to CJAD listeners. We were, we were tuned in all the time, but no, we did have shifts. And Peter, <clears throat> excuse me, Peter and I would rotate, you know, sometimes I was on day shift and then he'd be on night shift uh, or evening shift because there was always something happening back then, as there is today. Uh, a lot of political stuff and a lot of things in the evening, a lot of demonstrations. So he and I rotated between evening and day shifts. It worked out pretty well. And overnight, uh, if there was a big fire, I was usually the first person out of the gate because that's the way I wanted it. 
There was no shortage of news in the late 60s and early 70s. Here are Sherman and Lechner reporting on a violent protest outside the U.S. consulate in Montreal following the Kent State shooting in 1970. Uh, again, Peter Sherman on the scene of that demonstration, right, Pete? Well, sorry to interrupt you so many times, Paul, but things just don't seem to be abating here. In fact, they seem to be spreading more than anything else. A number of the demonstrators have moved into the uh, lobby and the front part of an apartment building adjacent to the uh, U.S. consulate here and are confronting police once more. Police are not uh, sitting and taking and lying down either. They're moving in and uh, moving students out uh, and also demonstrators out. They're not all students uh, who have um, tried to force their will upon the police. This all stems, of course, out of a march from the uh, university earlier this evening down the street where more is happening. Richard Lechner. Well, Peter, it's hard to say exactly what the next move of the demonstrators will be. Now things seem to be quieting down, although they did a short time ago as well, until someone uh, threw a bottle of some sort at a uh, police constable uh, who has been injured to some extent and uh, I believe has been taken away. There is a lot of name-calling going on as the demonstrators... Peter Sherman says those heady times were also sometimes scary for reporters. When you're a young person um, and you're thrust into this and you get a call um i don't know 11 o'clock at night there's bombs going off in westmount peter you got to get over there you know from whoever's on duty and i go over there and i can hear the next one kaboom go somewhere and we're chasing around uh the area and listening to police scanners trying to locate uh where that might have been and, and we wind up uh, at the front doorstep of some well-known montrealer um generally anglo in background and uh uh, you know, you wonder, I'm, I'm driving this big blue Ford, and um, emblazoned on the side of it is CJAD 800. And I think I can safely say that at that time, the three greatest institutions uh, for Anglo-Montrealers, the ones that they related to, were uh, the Montreal Gazette, the, um, the Montreal Canadians, and CJAD Radio. So I'm a target. And I'm, and I'm 22, and I'm worried I'm going to get dragged out of my car and have the crap kicked out of me. Anyway, that never happened. But uh, my colleagues were worried about those kinds of things, too. And we took a lot of precautions. For example, who these days would carry um, in, their, uh, in their trunk, amongst the equipment that they required, a portable two-way radio so they could report in the event the, the cars were not available, a riot helmet, police grade, with a visor in front that couldn't be bashed by a brick. Those kinds of things. Those were standard issue for us, and uh, and this is, you know, in my face at 22. So uh, you talk about times; those are the ones I remember. Rick Lechner also recalls some harrowing moments from those times. One day, he found himself trapped in a burning building while covering the Sir George Williams riot of 1969, when police moved in to end a days-long occupation of the university by students protesting racist grading. The point that we were there, it was a demonstration. It then turned into a fire when the computer center was set on fire by the demonstrators, uh, who had uh, been sitting in for about two or three days. Uh, I went along with Rod Blaker and Danny McGinnis to seek refuge in the library in the 10th floor and uh, shortly thereafter became trapped there because of the smoke. And it was, uh, it, was, it was quite the harrowing experience. Did you have to break the windows to ventilate the room? We did. And that's the other thing that I remember very vividly. I was at the time 19 years old. 
I broke the window on the 10th floor with a bench uh, from the uh, library, put a note in a book, <laughs> uh, and threw it out the window saying, we need help. But as I looked out the window, the crowds below were yelling, burn, you bastard, burn, thinking I was one of the uh, sit-in demonstrators. How was that resolved in the end? Were you rescued? We were. I was able. We were able to uh, get a hold of the fire department. They came up. They got us, and, and they let us out. But uh, you know, it was uh, it was uh, let us say a very memorable occasion. And the best part about it, Trudy, the best part about it, because I used to like to compete with Sydney. Sydney was out of town on vacation, and he missed the whole thing. Lechner says, in fact, there was a lot of healthy rivalry in the Jewish mobile squad. There was, but that's what made it great, because it kept us on our toes all the time. Not only were we in competition with the uh, with with the other radio stations, French or English, but we felt we were somewhat in competition with one another, and that's good. Uh, you know, you need that thing to... Uh, to keep you going and keep you on your toes, and it worked very well. The political unrest in Quebec came to a head in October of 1970, with the kidnapping first of British Trade Commissioner James Cross, then five days later by the abduction of Provincial Cabinet Minister Pierre Laporte. Sidney Margulies recalls being on the air within moments of Laporte's kidnapping. And just then on the police radio came the words, Monsieur Laporte, enlevé, and I just stopped almost frozen because I knew Pierre Laporte. And then I could hear the police dispatcher. Remember, this is all a one way. We don't hear, we didn't hear two sides to the the broadcast. He would say, St. Lambert? I knew right away it had to be Pierre. I got on the phone, though, to double check, and I called the police dispatcher. And I said, did I just hear clearly that Pierre Laporte has been kidnapped from the front of his home on Robitaille in St. Lambert? And the dispatcher said, yes. I said, thank you very much. I hung up. I walked into the news booth. Bob Fisher, who was then doing the sportscast, will always remember as I shoved him on his coaster chair, moved him out of the way, and I interrupted the sports broadcast to announce the kidnapping of Pierre Laporte. And at that point, I stayed on the air as others from the station came in to provide me with assistance, uh, background information, and so on. And I stayed on the air until uh, basically uh, six or so the next morning. A week later, Laporte would be found murdered, his body in the trunk of a car parked on the South Shore. This is Sidney Margley, CJAD News. It appears that tragedy has now struck in the twin kidnappings which Montreal and Canada has lived with for the past two weeks. A blood-covered body has been found inside the trunk of a taxi. A taxi used in last Saturday's kidnapping of Quebec Labour Minister Pierre Laporte. We go to the scene of the discovery of the body, St. Hubert Air Base, and Richard Lechner. So a tight ring of security has been thrown around the entire St. Hubert Air Force Base, making it next to impossible for newsmen to get to the scene. However, uh, we have managed to get about as close to the vehicle as is humanly possible. It is uh, only barely visible a short distance from me, some 100 feet. The In the early days of the October crisis, the Trudeau government had implemented the War Measures Act, a moment Peter Sherman vividly recalls. All of a sudden, Montrealers are looking at tanks rolling down the street, uniformed soldiers carrying machine guns, 
and they're saying, what in the hell is going on in my city? So my memorable moment, I mean, we, we, uh, we were practically, I remember Rick and I practically in tears talking to each other about whether or not this was ever going to end because it was, uh, it was destructive to Montreal and it was really destructive to our personal lives. The later release of James Cross by his FLQ kidnappers was also a moment covered by the JMS. The terror cell's hideout had been located and Sid Margulies and Rick Lechner were reporting from there. Outside the police perimeter, Peter Sherman was in the right place to give chase when the abductors and their captive drove out toward the agreed-upon release location. I saw this old Chrysler come roaring out, and that had the kidnappers in it, along with James Cross, and I was to follow them. And I, the, it was with the police cordon, uh, what's, what's called the SQ now, the uh, Quebec Provincial Police then, and uh, I chased them at very high speed, doing what I would describe as stream-of-consciousness broadcasting on all of these stations across the country. They stayed with it for the entire period, and we roared along the Metropolitan and up to Cary and down to Man and His World, uh, which was, uh, it turns out, the designated spot where they were going to bring cross and, uh, and deposit themselves under guard until uh, they could be taken to the airport and flown on some kind of a jet to Cuba. That was the plan. And I had to stay with them. And, and so I'm doing probably 100 to 120 kilometers with the cops and the, uh, and the Chrysler, and I'm holding a microphone in one hand, and I'm talking, like I say, stream of consciousness, what I see and what's going on, for uh, it probably was uh, 20 to 30 minutes at the time, although it's 50 years ago, so it's hard to remember precise. Um, I remember that being uh, the most amazing moment or the most amazing moment uh, on air for me as a reporter. The long hours, the adrenaline, the deadline pressure, and the subject matter did take an emotional toll on the three men. Sid Margulies saw some terrible carnage at the scene of the Trans-Canada Airlines crash in St. Therese de Blainville, north of Montreal. That was in 1963. We now return you to the scene of tonight's tragedy. A TCA plane has crashed at St. Therese. With a report from the scene, here is Sidney Margulies. When you're standing out in pouring rain, every minute seems like an hour. And that's the way it is tonight. We're still waiting for the rescue operations, the search and rescue operations, to move into full force. And it's slow going. Men are arriving from Trans-Canada Air. 118 people were killed in the crash. Many people ask over the years, uh, did it affect you? Well, I have to say that notwithstanding the fact that the night of the event, I saw pieces of bodies, it didn't bother me initially. But I was told by my late wife that in subsequent nights, I would wake up talking in the middle of the night about what I saw. Rick Lechner says that while covering the Sir George riot was unnerving, the constant language unrest at the time was the most difficult to deal with. I would say the Sir George um, riot really (laughs) unnerved me, but more so were the language riots because of the crowds. And you're talking about thousands and thousands of people literally 
you know, going berserk. And, you know, we're trying to cover it. Uh, Sydney had equipped us and the station had equipped us with what we called at the time portable shortwave radios. There were no cell phones in those days. So these were fairly heavy things, but we can we could go anywhere at any time and, and be able to go live on the air. So we're lugging these things around and, uh, you know, wearing the riot helmets and the crowd goes one way and then starts heading toward you. You know, you're wearing a riot helmet. You could be uh, misconstrued as a cop. So there, there were some pretty frightening times during those uh, demonstrations as well. Peter Sherman was 22 when he began reporting for CJAD and says it's a good thing he had youth on his side. Reporting is a young person's game. You can't run that hard, you know, and jump in and out of cars and go report a fire at night and uh, go to a news conference with René Levesque in the morning and uh, go, go do a program with Jean Drapeau at noon. You can't, you can't run that kind of pace if you're 50 or 60. I'm not saying that's an old man. I'm saying that the old legs and the amount of stamina that you've got change over, uh, over the period of life. But that was the right time to be in reporting. Rick Lechner says amid all the reporting action, he and Sherman had to run a little car repair operation on the side. When we were young guys, Peter and I were young guys driving around with uh, either our soon-to-be wives or wives in a marked car with a cruiser. And, you know, you're in a driving in a, in a mobile billboard for CJD. And you had to be on your best behavior, understandably. But he also wanted the cars kept in good shape. So we'd get a little ding here and there. And we had to try to take care of it. We had no financial means to do so. We certainly didn't want to tell Sydney we'd scratch the car. So Peter and I formed Sherlock Auto Body for Sherman Lechner. And we had a little private enterprise going to keep our news cruisers spotless, and, and just in tip-top shape. Is this going to be the first time that Sid hears about this? Probably. <laughs> so what, you met in each other's garages? Yeah, that's right. You know, we would do touch-ups and whatever had to be done, we took care of it before it got to the big boss. Sherman left the newsroom for the CJAD sales team in 1974, then got into radio management, first with CJFM and CJAD, then becoming the president of the radio division at Standard Broadcasting's head office in Toronto. Rick Lechner narrowed his focus to helicopter traffic reporting after a time and also founded a public relations and communications firm. The radio convinced me that my greatest asset was and still is my name. And I really maximized that, Judy. I, I, as you said, I got involved in politics. I got involved in business. Uh, I got involved in uh, government, sat on some boards. And it was, uh, you know, it's been a very, very rewarding uh, uh, situation that I've had for, for decades. Sydney Margulies moved to Standards Ottawa operation for several years before returning to Montreal as president of Standard Sound Systems. To this day, the three members of CJAD's Jewish Mobile Squad stay in touch. Peter Sherman. For the Jewish Mobile Squad, Rick Lechner and Sydney Margulies and Peter Sherman were very, very lucky guys. Not only did we form a unit that worked well together, not only did we cover arguably some of the most amazing stories in the modern history of Quebec and of Montreal, but here it is, uh, 2021, and um, Sydney now in his 80s, Rick and I now in our 70s, are still friends and still want to know about each other's lives and still um, get together uh, to commiserate at situations that are not great in our lives, 
uh, and also get together to celebrate the wonderful events that are in our lives. And I, I treasure those relationships. They'll never die. CJAD spotlights the news at home and around the world. The world today. For the Mighty 800, I'm Trudy Mason. For more on CJAD 800's 75th anniversary, including incredible photos and sound, go to CJAD800.com. News Talk Radio, CJAD 800.